and the leaders here, thanks for joining us. Uh, whether you're a member of church here or you're just tuning in, whether you're someone who follows Jesus or if you consider yourself not really religious and you're just looking to find out what this is all about, thanks for being a part of our, uh, of our online service. Um, and also keep the comments flowing through. That's one of the things I've, look, of all the things that are, that are difficult about on, an online service, one of the things I've loved is just the interaction through it. I'd love to carry that through on the other side. And yeah, a few times I got a little bit carried away on the comment stream, but hey, sue me, right? It's a, it's a great thing to be able to do. We are, we're going to get stuck into Mark 11 that Gav just read out to us before. And, um, and I really believe if you're a follower of Jesus, that there is a strong word of encouragement here for you. And if you're someone who, again, is just checking out what Jesus is about, I think Jesus has something to say, something profound to say about mercy and anger to you this afternoon. So I'm going to pray that God would open our, our ears and our eyes and our hearts to hear his word today. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you so much. We praise you so much that you're a God who speaks, that you're a God who doesn't leave us alone in silence, that you're a God who has not made your world and then left us to our own devices, but a God who intervenes and who lovingly intervenes. We thank you that you speak to us through your word, that you give us your Holy Spirit to understand your word, and that you give us one another to encourage one another to press on for Jesus. And we pray that as we open your word this afternoon that you would speak to us, you would still our hearts and minds from whatever we are thinking about, whatever is worrying us. Well, I want to I try something with you that I haven't done before, and I'd, I'd love for you to go along with this little thought experiment. I want you to try, and I know, I know I'm going to say it, and then you're not going to do it. You're just going to wait for it to pass, but I'd like you to actually try this. I'd like you to close your eyes and try and imagine something that does not exist. I'd like you to try and just, just think of something, to visualize something that doesn't actually exist. And maybe you can post it up on the stream or whatever, but just try and think of something. Now, because we're not face-to-face, I can't see what you're thinking or how this is going for you. But I, that, even not being face-to-face, I can guess one thing. And it's that whatever you thought of was a composite of things that you'd already observed in life. Even when we try to imagine something that's impossible... It's still built out of our experience. It's still built out of the things that we've seen or heard. You can't imagine a color that you've never seen. You can't hear a sound that you've never heard before. You can't produce that in your mind. And it is the case that that whatever we imagine is kind of like, it's made up of almost like the little Lego bricks of our experience that we put it together. And I think this is the problem that comes with the modern conception of God. It's, It's a popular thing, I think, in our culture to say something like, I like to think of God as, and then fill in the blanks. Kind of to continue on on my Bulls documentary run, but Phil Jackson, who was the Bulls coach in the 90s, considered himself a reasonably religious person, but he had this to say about God. He said, I've always liked the concept of God being beyond anything the human mind can conceive. I think there is a pantheistic, deistic, American Indian combination religion out there for Americans. That rings true to me. Now, he's combined a few different Lego sets there and maybe some Duplo as well. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure it fits all that well together. But for him, he's taken kind of a, a sampling of all different things and kind of put it together and thought, that's what I like to think of God. And I think when we hear that, most people tend to think that's a really open-minded way to start thinking about God. But in truth, it's not. Because when we try to imagine something, we, can, we are limited to our cultural experience. And so what we tend to create is something limited by our own experience. 
And what we don't allow is for the possibility that there is a real God out there who might break down our categories and our presuppositions and our assumptions and be something other than what we would imagine. We lock God into who we think God could or should or would be rather than letting God be who he is and explain himself to us. And this passage is no different. Because I think in this passage, you're going to learn something surprising about God. That God is both more merciful and more angry than you dared imagine. And that's not something that we often like to conceive. But when we see this here, we'll see that he is more than we would imagine. And we see it clearly in the story of Mark 11. Now in Mark 11, we are up to, in terms of how much text there is in the book of Mark, we're in the final third. So there's still almost a full third to go. And yet the story that we pick up on here is the last week before Jesus dies. This is the Sunday, the Palm Sunday, if you're an Easter calendar person. This is the Sunday before the Friday where Jesus dies. So, so Mark really has been speeding along and suddenly we get to the final week of Jesus and we hit slow-mo. Now whenever you hit slow-mo, it's because someone wants you to pay attention to something. And usually they're trying to get you to pay attention to the key detail. When you slow down on something, if it's you know, sports photography or whatever it is, they're trying to get you to watch something very carefully. Unless you've got an iPhone and you press it at the wrong time and then it's like slow for the run-up and then fast for the backflip or whatever. But generally, when people get it right, they're trying to get you to focus on the key bit. Mark wants us to focus on the cross. Now, if you're sick of us talking about the cross week after week after week, well, guess what? That's what the Bible focuses on. A full third of this gospel and half of John's gospel is just on the last week of Jesus, even down to the last night. Because he wants us not to miss the significance of what's about to happen. But we pick up the story in Mark 11, sentence 1. And Jesus is about to head to Jerusalem when we read this. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and to Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they, said, and they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. So on the Sunday morning, Jesus gives instructions to his disciples that he plans to, to head into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, what exactly is Jesus doing here? It sounds like he is planning just the sickest bucks party ever. What, what is going on? What is his plan? Well, he's actually doing something here deliberately to provoke people. Jesus decides he's going to enter Jerusalem. And this is a big deal because he's been having a lot of interactions with religious leaders and it's not been going well. Every time he interacts with them, he upsets them. And more than upsets them, he makes them angry. They're mad at Jesus. And Jerusalem is the Mordor of religious leaders. This is where it's all happening. But not only that, they're there at a time of the year called the Passover, which was one of the biggest Jewish festivals in the calendar. And so people are pouring into Jerusalem, coming from their hometowns, traveling to Jerusalem. So the city is buzzing. It's packed. Think about Christmas time in Sydney. Relatives, everyone's flying in. Houses are packed out. It's busy and it's bustling. And Jesus is going to do something really significant right in the middle of this time, in a really key time. The other thing that's significant is that Jerusalem was the capital of, of Israel. But in AD 33, it was under Roman occupation. And it had a few special exemptions. Uh, effectively, the Jewish religious authorities were allowed to run Jerusalem how they wanted to. 
They were, it was a group called the Sadducees who had all the official power. Uh, and the Romans had given them reasonably free reign. They had their own little private police force called the Temple Guard, who were eventually the people who arrest Jesus later in the week. Uh, and, but really the people saw them as kind of as sellouts. The Sadducees kind of sucked up to the Romans so that they could get official power and be able to run things how they wanted. But they weren't popular with the people. But there was another religious group called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were popular with the people. They didn't have any official power, but they were, they were really godly. They were really focused on the Bible. And they were more like the people's champions. So you can think about it this way. The, the Sadducees were kind of like the SRC student council kids who had official power, but weren't really that popular. And then the Pharisees were like the cool kids that, that the kids actually listened to. But Jesus is about to do something, and it's going to upset both groups. What he's about to do is basically going to be the point of no return. After this, they're going to want to kill Jesus. Jesus comes into town and he's going to be riding on the back of a donkey. And the reason for it is one single sentence in the Old Testament. In Zechariah 9.9, we read this. It says, Your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. What's this about? Israel were promised that, there were, that God would send them a king one day who would restore Israel. He would be the king who would be greater than their greatest king, David, and he would rule forever. So they were waiting and waiting for this king, this Christ, this Messiah. And the promise in the Old Testament is that this king will arrive on a donkey. And you think, why a donkey? The reason for it was a, a king traditionally would, would arrive triumphantly on a horse, a war horse. But here, God is saying, my king is going to rule humbly. My king is going to be different. He's not going to rule like other kings. I mean, we saw last week, just before this passage, Jesus said, the Son of Man, talking about himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This king is not going to kill for his people. He will die for his people. He will give up his life as a ransom for theirs. He will pay the debt of sin that they had deserved. He's not going to be the king that they expect. He's going to be a humble king. So this statement of riding into town, riding on the back of a donkey, is meant to demonstrate to everyone, I'm a different type of king. But more than that, what he's hoping they'll get is that he's drawing on this verse from Zechariah, that he's the Messiah, the Christ, that everyone's been waiting for. And the question is, is anyone going to get it? One obscure sentence in the, in the Bible. Are they really going to pick up on this? Well, let's have a look in Mark 11, 7 to 9. It says, when they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut down in the fields. Those who went on ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Do they get it? They absolutely get it. Message received loud and clear. The people see him riding a donkey and they're like, this is the guy. He's, he's, he, he, we've been wondering. He's been doing all these things. We've heard about Jesus. This is the declaration that he is the Christ, the King. And so they shout out, Hosanna, God saves. This is, it's finally happening. The Messiah is here. They get it. But the crazy thing is that less than a week later, the crowds will not be shouting Hosanna. They'll be shouting crucify him. They don't get what kind of king he's going to be. That he's not going to be the king who's going to come and kill the Romans. He's going to be the king who dies for them on their behalf. 
He's going to be more merciful than anyone could ever have imagined. Recently, I was watching the movie 1917, and I'm aware it's a new one. Not everyone's seen it. I'm not going to spoil anything. But it's a composite of of true stories kind of put together into one single story. And in one of the sections, a German pilot, uh, the plane kind of crashes nearby some Allied troops, and the pilot is in the plane while it is on fire, sort of, you know, crashed on the ground, and it's, it's clear that he's going to die without some kind of intervention. And two Allied troops go and actually try to rescue him from the plane. And as they're doing this, he tries to fight them. And the, the, the feeling you get in the movies, you're like, how, how dare you? I mean, these people risk their lives to save you, even though that you're an enemy, and yet you're going to try and fight back. What on earth? It is such a frustrating thing to observe. And how much more so should we think that when we read this story of Jesus? That Jesus is coming to save these people. And in just a few days, even by the end of this story, they're going to be plotting to kill him. The one who has come from heaven didn't have to, but has stepped into human suffering and sin and reality to save his people who were enemies from him, who had willfully separated themselves from him. You think of the mercy of that. And yet these people will reject him. We will reject him. This is no ordinary mercy. God is far more merciful than you or I would ever have imagined. Whoever would have thought up this story when thinking about God? God is more merciful than we or Phil Jackson or anyone could have ever imagined. He is beyond what we would have imagined. And that's what makes the next part of the story so surprising. Having established how merciful he is, look at what happens next. In Mark 11, 11, it says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts and he looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he's had this huge triumphal entry. People have laid down their coats, tree branches, called out Hosanna. All of that sort of simmered away. And then in the afternoon, he goes and checks out the temple. And it's late, so we're told that they leave and they go to Bethany, which is about three kilometers away from Jerusalem. So think about Double Bay from the city. That's about how far they walk out. That's where they're staying. And they're going into Jerusalem each day. So he checks out the temple on the Sunday afternoon. And now the next part of the story is on the Monday. And in Mark eleven twelve to 18, we read, The next day, so this is the Monday, as they were leaving Bethany, so they're coming back into town, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went out to find if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. So they're going into town. It's early in the morning. Jesus is hungry, he wants breakfast, sees a tree, goes to see if it has any fruit, and he absolutely loses it. There's no fruit on the tree, and he curses it and says, may no one ever eat fruit from you ever again. His disciples must have been like, just calm down, Jesus. It's just a, it's a fruit tree. It's an inanimate object. But I want you to remember this part of the story because Jesus is never wastefully angry. He doesn't fly off the handle for nothing. He's making a point here and he wants his disciples to remember it. And Mark has recorded it so that we remember it too. So keep that in mind as we head into the next part of the story as they go into Jerusalem. In Mark eleven fifteen to 18, it says, on, Jeru- on reaching Jerusalem, so they're finally there now, Jesus em- entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. 
and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So Jesus arrives back at the temple and from his visit the night before, remember the the day before he had visited the temple, so he knew what he was going to find there. He gets there and there are men trading and selling religious paraphernalia. They're making profit in the temple grounds. They're profiteers who are preying on religious tourists. As people kind of come into town for Passover, these guys are selling things and they're making money from God's people, from people who are seeking God. And Jesus is angry about it. He gets a cord. He drives them out. He won't let anyone make money or make profit off what they're doing. And he starts to teach the crowd. He rebukes these people publicly. And he says, see all this that's happening? This is not how it's supposed to be. This was meant to be a house of prayer. The temple was meant to be a place where people would come to worship God. And instead, these guys are making money out of it. It's disgraceful. He's sending a very public message. And if you think, well, why is he getting so wound up about some people selling some trinkets in the temple? You can think of it in this way. Imagine you work for a medical organization that was providing free vaccinations for people in a refugee camp. And you visit the site and you find that the local volunteers are selling those vaccines to people for inflated prices to make profit for themselves. These are meant to be free and for people and for children. Would you be justified in clearing them out and tipping over tables? You would. In fact, it would not be loving to politely ask them if they could just lower the price a little. You'd be justified to be outraged. You'd be like you vipers, betraying your own people. How could you? Cutting them off from life. Well, this is exactly what's happening in the temple. He's saying you guys are are profiting off God's people. You are are making it harder for people to connect with God because you're saying you've got to buy stuff in order to connect with God and you are profiting off them. They're frauds and he calls them out. It is the right right response to what's going on. Anger is the right emotion here. I don't know how you feel about anger, but anger is actually a good emotion. Anger is the sense in us when we look at something and we think that's not right, that's not fair, that's not good. It prepares us to intervene and to take action. It says that's not fair and I'm going to do something about it. That's not right and I'm going to do something about it. Anger is the emotion that will make you disregard your own safety and stand up for the poor woman on the bus who's suffering a a racist tirade. Anger is the emotion that makes you do something when you see a parent grab their kid by the shirt collar and threaten them. It's the emotion that says, I'm not just going to be a passive bystander. I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to intervene. It focuses you. It prepares the body to, to intervene. It's the emotion that energizes us to solve problems and to get involved in a situation rather than just be passive. The problem is that anger is so often pointed at the wrong thing. And because so much of our experience of anger is negative, we tend to think that all anger is negative. But in and of itself, it's good. The world needs both less and more anger. Less selfish, greedy, petty, childish anger and more good, righteous, invigorating, problem-solving, Christ-like anger. The kind that we see in this passage. Jesus is not passive. He sees his father dishonored and he says, that is not right. People are being abused here and I will step in and I will do something about it. He does something. He doesn't just sit there smoldering. He doesn't just you know, tweet a cynical tweet about it. 
He doesn't get mad about it, but then not do anything about it and then go gossip to his disciples. He confronts it. He confronts it head on and does something about it. And notice he doesn't lose control. He doesn't go beating people up. He isn't out of hand. He acts fitly and appropriately. Not only that, he was slow to anger. Remember, he saw this the day before and he spent the night thinking about it and praying about it. He's like, no, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to publicly denounce these guys. And this, of course, brings us all the way back to the whole fig tree thing. Because look what happens next in the story. This explains why he did the whole fig tree thing in the first place. In Mark eleven nineteen, we read, When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. So what's happened here? The fig tree from the day before is completely withered. It's a miraculous thing, but Jesus was giving them a parable. Israel, God's people, were described as like a vine, something that should bear fruit in the Old Testament. And Jesus here is giving them a living illustration. This thing was meant to bear fruit, and it didn't. God's people were meant to bear fruit. They were meant to honor him. And instead, they just thought because they had the temple, they were God's people, and they could do whatever they want. But God is angry enough and cares enough to confront the sin of his people, and he calls them out. He finds greed and sin in the temple instead of prayer and worship. They lived without regard to their God. They presumed that because they were, they were God's people that they always would be. And here, Jesus goes in and he judges. He calls them out. See, God is more merciful than we could imagine, but he is angry at sin. He's not merciful simply because he's too weak to deal with real issues. When he sees sin, he will deal with it. One of the things about this is that we, we live in an anti-authoritarian society. We don't like authority. It's not a word that, that kind of makes our heart rouse. We make, make, we make sport of ridiculing our leaders. If you go to school, you maybe made, you routinely ridiculed your teachers. And just think, just think what that does for you. The fact that you could say anything about a politician or about a teacher or whatever and pretty much get away with it, it builds in us the belief that no one is really ever going to hold me account to what I do. And maybe you grew up in a consequence-free environment where whenever you messed up, somebody sort of covered for you, or if you caused damage, someone else would pick up the tab. Or maybe you had the kind of parents who would threaten to count to three, and then at the end of that would just count to three again. And you can't really believe that there's a God out there who would actually hold you to account for what you believe or do. But the truth is, God will. God is angry enough to deal with sin, to confront sin. Jesus came and died in our place so that we could have forgiveness from God his offer is that if you trust in him it is done it will never be held over your head or brought up again you are washed clean completely Jesus will pay your debt but if you refuse to accept his offer it will be you who has to pay the debt you will stand before a God and give an account for your life Jesus is not mucking around here he's not to be trifled with Christ will happily pay your debt of death, but if you will not accept his offer, you'll pay it yourself. Have you taken his offer seriously? And if you are a follower of Jesus, if he is your saviour, do you see him as the one to model yourself after? Having experienced his mercy, knowing that he's not a God who is too weak to deal with sin, he deals with sin. That's why Jesus had to die. He has set a day when he will judge, and yet he has set you free. He teaches you how to deal with anger and mercy. 
Jesus came and died. He was angry enough about sin to, to deal with it and yet merciful enough to over, overlook sin. See, isn't it the case that we admire people who are both merciful and angry enough to deal with real injustice? I remember my first head teacher when I was a, a, a new teacher coming out of uni. She was a, she was a tough but fair kind of head teacher. And she'd cut her teeth uh, kind of in Western Sydney. That was her first sort of teaching position right out of teacher college back in the day. And she used to have some great stories about the loose happenings teaching out West in the, in, the, in the early 90s. I think her first teaching, she was saying in her first term of teaching, there was pretty much an all-out brawl in one of her classes. And these were, these were big, like man-child big boys, right? Fighting almost a gang fight in the middle of one of her classes. And you think of this new grad teacher, like what is she going to do? She stepped right into the middle of the fray, separated them, and then this, I thought her strategy was brilliant. She got them all to stand against the wall 10 meters apart with their nose touching the wall until she could call in more help to sort of deal with the situation. And you just think the, the brilliance of that. She had, she had enough of an anger to say, I'm not just going to stand by passively and say, well, not my job, not my problem. If they beat each other up, whatever. She got in and she took a few hits getting involved in a fight like this. She risked her own safety because she's like, I'm the kids should not be harming each other like this. But she didn't just come in throwing haymakers, and she could have. She was tough enough. But she didn't just come in throwing haymakers. She separated them mercifully so that they wouldn't harm one another. She was angry enough to deal with the issue and yet did it mercifully. Jesus models this. Jonathan Edwards calls this the diverse excellencies of Christ, that he is both angry at sin, he's not passive, and yet he is merciful to us. The two go together. In fact, the two temper one another. The fact that he is angry shows that his mercy is not just mere weakness. And the fact that he is merciful shows that he's not just an angry God who flies off the handle. He's fair and reasonable. Now I wonder for you, how do you deal with anger? Have you modeled yourself of how Christ has dealt with you? I've had the realization this week that I think I'm not angry enough. And that's not, to, I know if my wife's listening and she'd be like, well, what is that, right? But I, I am, I'm an angry person, but my anger is not like Jesus. It's not the good, clean, problem-solving anger. It's not the just anger that he observes. It's more the dirty, petty kind. I get angry about things that don't matter and I get angry in the wrong way. Instead of it motivating me to mercifully intervene in situations, I often just make them worse. But Jesus knew how to be both merciful and angry enough to confront sin. And there's something in that for us. If you're a follower of Jesus, you should be the same. That's how Christ has been with you. He didn't deal with you as your sins deserve, but he was merciful to you. Are you a person who is good at getting angry at injustice, but you're not very merciful? You've forgotten perhaps that someone had to show you mercy, that Christ had to die in order to be merciful to you that you actually are quite confident to confront people about issues of injustice or if, if you've been wronged or someone else has been wronged. But you do so in such a way where you delight in punishing people, in laying out their sin before them, in confronting them and, in, and defeating them verbally. If so, you need to be more Christ-like, one who is angry enough to deal with it and yet does so with mercy, is willing to confront something properly and not just gloss it over, but then to forego punishment, to forgive and to love. 
but perhaps, and I think this is more likely, that you're possibly a person who appears to be more merciful, more willing to overlook sin. But the truth is that when we don't deal with things that are genuinely unjust or problems that are real or sin issues that are real in our life and in others, and we simply overlook it, that what tends to happen is you become just passive-aggressive. You are angry at a situation, but you don't want to confront it, so you just smolder away inside and combust. Or you become cynical. Or you do punish, but you do so by being sullen and silent and withdrawn and you pout and sulk. Instead of dealing with the, the issue and going to the person directly, you talk to everyone else, you gossip, you slander, you punish, but not by dealing with things directly. If so, you need to learn from Jesus. He would intervene when there was an unjust situation. When there was a problem there in the temple, he didn't gloss over it. He addressed it directly. He shows us what it is like to be a fully flourishing human being. And that means at times that anger will lead you to intervene mercifully in a situation and to deal with things. Maybe there are issues in your workplace that really need dealing with. You need to confront something an injustice there or something that's wrong or unfair and to do it properly and mercifully like Jesus would. Maybe there are issues in your family and no one's talking about it or in your marriage and you're punishing one another with silences or talking around one another or, or subtly berating one another in front of other people but not dealing with it properly. Not learning from Jesus' example to be someone who deals with it head on. I want to put this challenge to you this week. I want to challenge you to ask two questions. And the first one, I would challenge you to ask someone who you trust and who you love and to say to them, where do you see me expressing anger unhelpfully? And not do I, because if you do have an anger problem, you've probably created an environment around you where, where people are like, oh no, they, you're not angry at all, you're fine. And so I would say, even, even put the caveat before it to say, if you knew that I would not explode in sinful anger, where would you honestly tell me that, that I'm expressing anger unhelpfully? That's the first question. Are there areas where I'm expressing anger unhelpfully? Where I'm getting angry about the things that don't matter? Or I'm doing so in such a way that it's almost just self-righteous anger, forgetting the mercy that I've been shown? Where do you see me expressing anger unhelpfully? And secondly, this is a good question, I think, just to ask yourself. Are there things that you're not getting angry about that you should be? Are there injustices? I mean, we get so much news all the time. There are so many injustices in the world, it's, you just become numb to it. But is there something to pray through where you're like, God, that's something that actually should make me angry, that I should, that you are actually calling me to intervene in, that I'm not. And to see what God does through that. If God by His Spirit prompts you that there is something that He is urging you to intervene in. We worship a God who is loving enough to be angry about the things that matter and yet merciful enough to overlook sin. He teaches us how to be both merciful and angry. I'm going to pray that he would teach us to be true disciples of him. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for your diverse excellencies. That you are the God who is beyond even our imagining, more merciful than we even have capacity to be, because you were more innocent and more righteous and more good. And not only that, but you are angry at sin. That you don't overlook injustice or unfairness. That you see the wrongs committed to us, against us, and by us. 
and you've dealt with it. For those who have found forgiveness in you, their sin has been dealt with by the blood of Jesus. But you have set a day and appointed a day when you will set all accounts to right. And God, we praise you that you are just, that you are not passive. We pray too that we also would not be passive, that we would care about unfairness and about injustice, about where it is in the world that you are being dishonored, that we would be like your son in this. And they would do this not for our own sake or our selfish gain, but for the sake of your holy name. Father, we pray this for your glory alone. Amen. We're going to stand.